stories. So welcome. Thank you everyone for being another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Today our guest is Puya. Puya is a first generation Iranian American actor, writer, filmmaker, and activist. She also happens to be trans. While she's seen many facets of human cruelty throughout war, oppression, and all forms of violence, she believes that there's good in all of us, and we have a chance to succeed if we believe it can and we work towards it. Nice. So Wonderful. Thank Thanks for being here. <laughs> so we always start off with this question. So the first question we have for you is, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? What identities most? I think... I would say being a trans woman uh, seems to kind of overshadow everything else uh, and not necessarily because I have chosen it to be so, but it just seems like the world can let go of the fact that I'm an immigrant or the fact that I happen to, uh, you know, like be from a Muslim background, but somehow like trans seems to be the largest, most overpowering thing that you become trans and then you just cease to be anything else. Mm-hmm. So based on that, I would say a uh, trans woman. Yeah. yeah. And I really appreciate that answer. Cause that's kind of a lot of the reason behind why we're doing this podcast, because that happens so often to people, but people are much more than one identity. Um, so I love that you're here to kind of talk about all of the other pieces of you as well, because it's important to realize people are multifaceted and they aren't just that one identity. See, I would also challenge that in a positive way of the fact that I think that my identity of being trans being, you know, the the biggest thing that everybody sees, I'm actually grateful for it. And I will tell you why, because you know, I'm from an Iranian background, middle class, bordering on upper middle class, whatever that means now in 2019. Um, but had it not been for my trans identity, I would have just been another pretty reasonably well-to-do Iranian girl whose only ambition in life would have been to just marry rich. I would not have seen beyond my immediate world. I would not have cared beyond my immediate world. But the fact that I happen to be in a subgroup within another group and realizing, one, that there was nobody else like me at the time that I was grappling with my identity and nobody else had any answers or any compassion or any room for me, then it allowed me to reach out and see other communities outside of my immediate world. And see the world in a way that I would have never seen it otherwise. So while I do acknowledge that we are more, but I think in a way it can be the best part of us True. because it allows us to see things that I think otherwise we wouldn't have seen. Mm-hmm. And for that, I'm absolutely grateful. So when people tell me, no, you're a woman, I always correct them. I say, I understand what you're trying to say to me, which is you're trying to elevate me into this imaginary elevated world of not being trans. Whereas I totally own my journey and I owe a lot of who I am, whether it happens to be that 
I'm compassionate or that I try to fight for the younger members of our community or that I happen to even see um, the the fights and pillages of different communities, whether it happens to be people of color, uh, women, people that are differently abled or whatever it is, I definitely owe it to that. So while, yes, I also happen to be a cook, I also happens to be someone's daughter, I also happen to write stories and, you know, I take care of a pet and, you know, all of that. I wholeheartedly believe that so much of the good that exists in who I am comes from that identity. Mm -hmm. And the fact that other people don't see it and it somehow puts you, you know, on a, on a lower level. It's like when, when people say, but you're a woman in their mind, they're elevating me to, you know, being, being cis. And I totally own that back. I want to look at it as the fact that it's a wonderful thing. It's like having a magic power that other people don't have and giving into it and embracing it and seeing it for the unique quality that our community has, which not everyone has. And I like to think that we've been given that because, because we can. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. It's really Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) today. I never really thought about that to that extent before like everything you said is true and I have a lot of like trans women in my life who are just as out loud and proud as you but I think would still be taken aback by what you said so I'm just like trying to absorb everything <laughs> right now maybe part of it for me is age Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a birthday this week. I turned 41. Um, when birthday. I was, <laughs> when I was four, five, seven, nine, ten, whatever, you know, this is like 30 something years ago. Uh, there was no trans word mm-hmm. in my vocabulary or the vocabulary of my community. Mm-hmm. So it didn't exist. It was them, those people which of course, you know, could never be like the child of my family. Uh, even though my mom kind of knew, and I, I've got to give props to my mom for taking me to a therapist when I was three. And this is, you know, now somebody say, well, why therapist? I mean, I don't know what an Iranian mother 37, 38 years ago in a Muslim country would have thought, uh, you know, if you have a young boy and they're playing with with dolls or they play the mom or whatever. And now we think about gender identity and gender expression and all those things, which these concepts did not exist back then. But so much of my life, I have been told and shown that, you know, it's better for people not to know because then, uh, you know, all of these things happen to you. And now when I look back on it, it was a gift. And I invite everybody who's listening to this to look at it as a gift. Gift doesn't mean that it makes your life easier. But it's like it gives you a vision into the world around you that other people don't have. And it may be one of those visions that sometimes like I'm like, universe, please take it back. I do not want this vision. You know, it's like as in these great uh, Greek mythologies, you have this, that the hero of the story is given this gift, which then creates all of these problems that they have to solve throughout the path. And then by the end, everybody's happy. And I kind of really look at, look at it that way, that the universe, our 
biology, our mind, our souls, however it is that we as individuals come together and become who we are. I think in a way it is a gift that it's been given, let's say to me and this person, Puya, this is your gift and you're going to find what your purpose is. For the longest time I looked for my purpose and now I realize part of it is the fact that you know, the universe decided that I was going to be strong and kind of sassy and the world wasn't going to tell me what I was going to do and be. And that has allowed me to be there for the younger members of our community. And when somebody talks to me or asks me or emails me and says, I think God doesn't love me, or I think that I'm sick, that personally hurts me. And the fact that I can tell that person and I can look at them in the eye and I can hold their hand and I say, don't ever think you are sick because you're not. You're just different. You're unique. And in the world, we value unique things. The only thing that gives jewelry its value is the fact that it's unique. If, if you could find it everywhere, there'd be nothing precious about it because it would be everywhere. There's, there's nothing precious about something that can be found at any time. But our community, you know, some people say it's like it's 2% or 1.7%. You know, I always say with a couple of inches between friends, what's a couple <laughs> of percentage points between friends? Um, and the fact that we are unique, I feel we are kind of like the gatekeepers between the two opposed part of the gender, gender, and I don't want to say opposed, um, uh, the the two opposing, you know, like gender norms, mm -hmm. Ken and Barbie, if you may, which mm -hmm. nobody is Ken or Barbie. And I feel that the trans community, trans women, trans men, non-binary people, we're kind of like, I don't want to even say the gatekeepers, but we're like the equator of gender somewhere in the middle there that have qualities from both sides of the spectrum. And I think instead of thinking that it's weird and strange, I think we can bring the opposing parts of the spectrum closer and realizing how much more similar we are than different. And I consider that a gift in my life to be that person. Sure, it's made life hard, but I always say nothing good is easy. Very true. Unfortunately. <laughs> Usually nothing that's worth fighting for is easy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise everybody have it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Sorry for the pamble. It's definitely Sunday. Clergy <laughs> <laughs> blood is, is bubbling. <laughs> yes, wonderful. So you mentioned that your mom took you to see a therapist when you were as young as three. You weren't in the U.S., you said, yet at that point, right? Yeah. No, you weren't. Um, my mom had taken me to a therapist when I was three, then when I was eight, then when I was 11, then when I was 16 which 16 is the first time we ever heard the term trans. At that time, they used to call it gender identity disorder, which I personally don't like the term disorder because I think it's a misalignment. And I don't even like to call it misalignment because it's a different kind of alignment. Right. You know, who you are, how you see yourself and your physical sex just align in a different way than most people do. Mm -hmm. uh, but at that time, they used to call it a disorder. And the term at that time was transsexual. And that was because I was heavily depressed. I was in high school at that time. I mean, I'd been bullied since I was like in elementary school. My only saving grace was that I was a good student. So the teachers didn't bother me. 
But, you know, by the time I was basically in the middle of my puberty and at that time, and, you know, that chasm was just getting bigger between what the world expected me to be and who I wanted to be. Uh, And the truth of it is that when the therapist first told my mom that, because I went into the therapist's office saying, I think I'm crazy, doctor. I mean, that that is what my understanding of it was. I'd never heard the term. And this was even before I'd ever seen Jerry Springer. See, that that is how low my bar was at that time. But my mom talked to the therapist. I talked to the therapist. And I thought, oh, yay, you know, we have a word. This is going to be great. Everything's going to be great. And when we sat in the car, my mom, who is now a huge supporter of trans rights, um, both here and now that she's back in Iran, she's she's a mother in that sense that I believe that parents, most parents, unless there's something mentally wrong with them, uh, they really do their best to try to protect their children for the most part, based on their understanding and what they consider to be right and true and good. But even my mom at that time, when we sat in the car, she basically said to me, she said, I heard what the doctor said, but you can't do anything about this until your father and I die. You know, and I was 16. And that was very hard. Mm -hmm. That was very hard to a 16 year old in a world like I literally felt that this door had been opened and it was Mm -hmm. just closed. You know, it's like I assume. And then, um, you know, came a, a worse period of depression, uh, you know, a few other things happen, suicide attempts, a lot of really self-destructive behavior, but I can only say divine intervention, which some people say there's no divinity. Maybe there isn't, maybe there is something, some power somewhere protected me in situations that now when I look back, my sisters, my brothers, my gender non-conforming siblings have died in similar situations. But I was fortunate enough, and I feel that that fortune um, has propelled me forward to make sure that I let people know how dark it can be, because I've been to the edge and back, and I want people to know that those people that are no longer with us, that they were there, that they had value, that they do have value. And the younger people who sometimes feel lost, who feel torn between the identities that their families and their surroundings have given them and how they see their own existence, I want them to know that there really isn't a contradiction. That if they have faith, that if um, they feel that there is a higher being, I want them to know that that higher being does not hate them because they happen to be different. And I know somebody's going to say, well, you know, there is no higher being. And I said, well, that is for you to believe. But there are people who that is a huge uh, dilemma within them that tears them apart. And I want them to know, no, you know, they are created as they are. And that is their beauty that they share with the world. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Not only that, but there's something to embrace. And I give the stupidest example. If, if one believes in God, if God believes in the binary world, everything would be black and white. Mm-hmm. And thank God that we live in a world that red exists and yellow exists and pink exists and aquamarine exists and all of these colors. So if one believes in a God, I don't believe it's a God that looks at life in a binary world. No. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And if you don't believe in God, then that, that, that's okay too, <laughs> you know. 
this is not this is not a story on on faith, but it's a story that I have encountered people who have that very deep within them and those questions. And if I, in my humble way, I can be there to, at the very least, be a positive voice in their life and say that you are great and wonderful as you are. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't aspire to be the best that you can possibly be in your capacity as a, as a unique human being that you are. But you are not sick. You are not defective. There's not something wrong with you. God doesn't hate you. And if some huge catastrophe happens somewhere in the world, it's not because of you. I know. It's insane to say that, but there are people who believe that. So. But yeah, we hear those responses all the time when there's some natural disaster happening. And as ridiculous as that sounds, like you said, there's so many people who believe that. And yeah, and I appreciate you saying you know, this isn't a binary world. Nothing about this world is binary. I think people are more comfortable thinking in binary because it's more simple and easy to understand, but absolutely nothing about the world is binary and how boring would it be if it was? <laughs> so yeah. The most basic example, night and day. It's not night and then suddenly it's day. Right. Night blends into day and vice versa. And that's gender right. and everything else that's good and bad. That's seasons, that's um, galaxies, that's water and, and earth. It's everything. You know, very rarely is it like this and then suddenly that. Mm -hmm. Even in race, we don't have those delineations, even though there are those people who believe that that is how it happens. I'm 100% Iranian, but when I looked at my ancestry, it says, you know, it's like I'm 85% this, I'm 15% that, I'm 5 that, and I embrace that. I don't want to be something, you know, it's like pure and clinical because that's not life. Right. Right. I feel Plus like we're kind of naturally transitioning into your story. <laughs> so how do you feel about sharing your story with us? Great. <laughs> I, I feel great. What I love to talk about is the combination of self-worth love, and strength. And I know that this is beyond queer stories, but, you know, it's like, like I said, it's something I can't shut up. It's kind of like it's colored everything that's happened in my life. So as, as, a, as a very young person, you know, I had my romantic ideas about what life was going to bring me. And let me tell you, I'm a sucker for a pretty face as much as the next person. And so I had, I had my crushes. In, in elementary school, you know, there would be a kid like a grade or two above me. But of course, I could not speak of it. Then I went further up, like fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Seventh grade, I, uh, my mom and I went to Dubai. My mom was an English teacher and she was teaching at a university. So this was the first time I was studying outside of Iran. I was 12. And I got to see this other world and I got to experience these different cultures. And yes, at 12, there were some lo lovely young men who I had huge, 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 like kind of like if they don't love me back, kind of die kind of crushes, which of course one does at 12 and 13, because, you know, if that love doesn't happen, we're going to die. <laughs> God, that doesn't actually happen. And I think that was when people were starting to really pick up on the fact that I was different, 
you know, girls confided in me, which didn't have anything to do with me. And, you know, I would be bullied in different ways. But that was the first time I was realizing that I had attractions, you know, puberty was hitting because I didn't have an outlet to experience myself, my desires in a healthy way. I was open to anything and anyone who was willing to show me affection and attention, which there was this, you know, much older guy. But now looking back in the culture we live in now, you look back and I'm like, why is a 40-something-year-old man paying attention to a 12-, 13-year-old kid? I know, now we think it's strange. Back then, we didn't. Um, and even at that time, I thought that the attention that he was giving me was, was not right. But he was giving me attention, the first person who'd ever given me attention. So that passed. Then I came back to Iran, and I kept exploring who I was. And I would... Basically, I'd become a target for people because I was one of those people who truly couldn't hide who I was, even if I tried. The more I tried, the worse it got. Like, it just became more obvious. It's like, it's like having a balloon and trying to squeeze it in one place and then it just kind of like plumps up somewhere else. And I became kind of like a target for everybody by the time I reached high school. I remember there were these two guys who were offering me protection in school if I gave them what they wanted. And there were many of these kinds of boys. And I didn't have a great amount of self-worth. I didn't think that I was really worth much other than what other people wanted from me. So I gave them that. One after the other, this one and that one and that one's friend and that was cousin. And this kind of went on for a few years. People who were not good to me, who were abusive in um, in, in a verbal sense, some people who were also um, abusive in a physical sense. And then it got worse as I got older and as my depression um, uh, got, got deeper. But then certain things happen in there that I now remember as little benchmarks in my experience. And that was people who showed me kindness. You know, we don't think much of kindness. Um, it's become passe. But it is not passe, because kindness is like a rope that can help somebody who's fallen to the bottom of a dark well. And in the midst of all of those boys who just wanted me for my body, for nothing more than just a momentary pleasure, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not poopering on momentary pleasure. Momentary pleasure is great, so long as both people are on the same page. <laughs> that was not the case. But there was this one young man who was kind to me. I still remember his name. He was a year or two older than me. And, you know, he was the only person I remember who actually didn't push to have sex with me. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what he possibly wanted from me. <laughs> but he just wanted to be with me. He wanted my company. And to this day, I remember... He was, you know, kind of kick-ass in his own way. He had, he had uh, a motorcycle. And, you know, I was 17, 18, so mm -hmm. a slightly older boy with motorcycle, just like, I guess I'm living, you know, some 16 candles fantasy there. But, you know, he came with his motorcycle once to just go for a ride. 
And I was so screwed up in my head at that time that because I couldn't understand what this boy wants from me, I, I didn't go with him. I broke it up with him because what could he possibly want with me if it's not sex? And that goes to show how low I thought of myself, that I thought a good-looking, sweet, cool person could possibly want something from me other than just, you know, sex. He was one benchmark. He was the one light at that point in my life. Then a few years passed. I went to England waiting uh, to come to the U.S., then I came to the U.S., you know, it's like as a 19-year-old kid in Manhattan, going to Fashion Institute of Technology, hanging around with models at the tail end of Heroin Chic. We thought it was so cool. And, you know, um, young designers, photographers, ad agencies, a whole lot of party. Now, let me tell you, a whole lot of party, which I do not miss at all. I do not miss kids out there. This is not a promo for party. Partying is, is not as great as people make it out to be. And again, because I didn't have a great sense of self, I hung out with people who had really not much interest in me beyond, you know, the physical veneer and the drugs that we did. I, I, I'd be very open about the fact that I almost OD'd twice about 17, 18 years ago. And that was another wake-up moment for me of realizing that I was just hanging out with people who couldn't care less if I died right there, uh, other than the fact that I would have been messing with their party. Then I moved out of that, and I met someone who then became my husband. And this is the juicy part of this story. I thought that he was going to be my protector. He was about 17 years older than me. And probably had he... Um, been raised in a different environment at a different time, at a different industry. He was from the South. He was born in the 60s, and he was in a very masculine industry. He was a construction manager. I think had he been in a different world, he probably would have come out as gay. But considering that was the world he had been raised in, he had grown up in, and he was working in, that was just not a possibility. So... He was dating me, and at this time, I was pre-op, and I was 24. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody that wants to protect me, somebody that wants to be there for me, somebody that wants to be there by my side when everything hard happens. And that meant so much to me until about six months in, maybe not even six months, maybe less, I realized that this wasn't quite the heaven that I thought that it was going to be. It took me a year, a whole year. And now that sounds really stupid, but it took me a year to realize that he was abusing me verbally and then physically. That every time we had a fight, he would walk out and he would call me in an hour or so and tell me, I'm going to commit suicide. And he did this to me for a whole year until I finally said, you know what? Go ahead, do it. Why did I put up with it? Because I didn't think there was anything more in my life. I didn't think anything more or better was going to come up. I thought this is exactly what I deserved. I thought this is the best it was going to get. And then after a year of that, I thought, 
This can't be the best. I'm a good person. People like me. I make people smile. I cook for people with, with love. I've never tried to use anybody. I've never abused anybody. I've never um, tried to hurt anybody. My biggest crime was that I was trans. And after a year of that relationship, I had my surgery. And then I thought, well, what is the greatest thing that I can now accomplish? I could get married. You know, I know now I think about it and I'm like, oh, Puya, how little did you know? But when it's a right you don't have, it's so precious when you feel you get it. And so even though I knew that this person was on the brink of something bad and dark, I thought we'll get married. We're going to solve our problems because he has said that he's going to be my protector and he's going to be there on the path with me and it's all going to work out. We got married. Six months after that, we got separated for a month. And then we got back together. And then, making long story short, he got really angry one night and he tried to choke me to death. And somehow, by divine intervention, as I said earlier, people have died with situations like this, but I was fortunate enough that I didn't. He tried to choke me to death and somehow it didn't happen. Some power kept him from killing. And that was the last time we separated. It was the first time I lived by myself. I started finding out who I am. And I always say through that relationship, I found the backbone I always had, but that I didn't know that I had. I thought that I needed other people to give me strength. What I found was that I was the strong one that other people needed. When it came time to divorce, he said, I won't divorce you. He said, I'll make your life a living hell. Who says that in real life? Nobody says that in real life. That's something people say in bad soap operas. But my life was a bad soap opera. He said that. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand how somebody that had said they were going to love me and protect me, how this person could now say, I'm going to make your life a living hell. I wrote a poem. It was called Sorrow. It was kind of depressing. And then two days later, I wrote another poem. It was called Dagger. And then I called him and I left him a message. And I apologize in advance if I'm going to use a profane word. I said, let me clarify something for you. I'm a child of a revolution. I grew up during eight years of war. I've been bullied. I've almost been run over by a car. I survived my parents. I survived my own suicide attempts. You've got nothing on me. And we have four cases of domestic violence. You moved out from me and moved in with somebody else. We've been apart for two years with no effort to reconcile. And I work. You don't which means I can hire a lawyer and sue your ass until one of us dies. Do you really want to try me, fuckface? I apologize for that. That is not who I really am. But the world had pushed me in that corner that I had never thought I could fight back in that way. But that was a moment that I stood up and I said, bring it on. And he folded. He folded. And a little funny point of that story, he said, well, if you pay me, I'll give you a divorce. I said, how much do you want? 
He said a thousand. I said you're worth six hundred. Said take it, take it. Not I'll see you in court. He took it. But what I realized through that was, we have strength within us, and strength isn't something you wake up one day and you're like, I'm going to be strong today. No, that is not how strength happens. Strength is when you see a bullet coming at you, and at that split second, something in you says. This is what you're gonna do. You duck. You fight back. I've almost been raped by three guys when I was a teenager. In that moment, all that went through my head was that I'm gonna die right now. I'm gonna die. And the only thing that saved me was the fact that I thought, well, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die fighting my way through this. And I did. I actually bit a human being multiple times. I bit a human being stronger than I've ever bit anything in my life. I screamed at the top of my lungs. I kicked back. I fought back. I bit back. I did everything and anything my reptilian mind was propelling me forward to do, and that just bought me enough time to scare these guys and other people who were further away to come. And by the way, the sad part of this. You know that that intro that I say I know the atrocities that people can commit. While I and my friend were being violated, there were about ten, fifteen people standing around watching this happening as entertainment. So when people say about horrific stuff, I've seen it. But something in me has always propelled me to fight forward. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know. If it's that I drink too much water, or I like cucumbers, or watermelon is like you know my secret fantasy, I don't know. But I fought back, and through that, I realized I'm worth more than what the world has given me. And I take all of the story that I told you, and I share that with other people who are still not in that place of strength, not because there's anything wrong with them. We don't all have. The same level of strength, but for those of us who do, for those of us who have survived, for those of us who have the compassion and the desire to want to be there for our siblings, whether queer or not, I want those people to know they're not alone. That there's not something wrong with them, because we still victim shame. We still victim shame. People who get raped, who stay in abusive relationships, people who horrible things happen to them, and I want to be a force to say that it is not. I can be butt naked and drunk out of my mind, and that still does not give the right to anybody to touch a hair on my head. And I want to say this to the younger members of our community who've been told that they're not worth anything, because when you feel that you're not worth anything, you allow people to treat you like you're not worth anything. And that, as a self-proclaimed one of the many mamas and aunties of our community, I want to be someone who tells that kid, "You are worth so much more than you've been led to believe." You are going to be that shining beacon of light. That ten years from now, when you're my age and I'm still my age, even at that age, the younger people that are going to come to you and need guidance, or at the very least, not need someone to tell them that they are worthy and that they are lovable and that they are respectable and that they have equal rights to respect and humanity and autonomy like anybody else, that 
that person is then going to be the role model and so on and so forth because that is the strength of our community not just sideways but through generations being inspired by people's strengths and their fight and the fact that they didn't give up even if it did cost their life and their livelihood and that is my story Wonderful. Ta-da. <laughs> thank you so much thank for sharing you. all of that it was beautiful that was, that was a lot. That was good, though. Like, are you okay? I'm fine. Okay. Look, it's sunny. <laughs> it's sunny and it's sunny. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I take pride in the fact that I've survived. But with that, for me, goes responsibility. Because there are people in our communities that were not fortunate enough. Mm-hmm. And people should know that they were there and what their legacy was. Absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, you've had opportunities to really be that support for others and tell them their value and their worth, you know, at some of those low points. And I'm curious, who was that for you during some of these moments? Who were your supports or people that helped show you your strength? I think the kindnesses that I talk about, kindness is one of the words that is always circling in my head. You know, whether it was the young boy at 18 who showed me kindness in a way that had not been shown, or when my parents didn't know quite what to do with me, there was a family who were friends with my parents, and they kind of took me in for about three months. Um, Their daughter had moved out, and they did her room. They made a room for me in their home. They fed me. They include me as a part of family. They didn't hide me. They didn't make excuses for me. They were there for me. That was probably the one major thing at that point that kept me from actually succeeding in killing myself. There was another family. There were three girls that were my childhood friends. One of them was a year older than me. One of them was two years younger than me. And another one who was five years younger than me and their family. I kind of grew up in their house. I used to do makeup, you know, it's like in their room when I couldn't do it anywhere else. And their parents saw it. They never, ever made me feel that there was something wrong with me. And then when I came to New York, there were people, there was a lovely counselor at school that I had her name I will remember her name and I value what she brought into my life Liza Walski she and others like her they helped me realize that I wasn't a sickness they helped me realize that I deserved love and respect and they helped me become the person that I am. And yes, there were moments that I felt that there wasn't anyone. And that's sad that I felt that because I think there were people, they just, I didn't know how to reach out to them. They didn't know how to reach out to me. But those little kindnesses that we do and we don't think that they're worth a lot at the time we do them. But let me tell you, they save lives. They save lives, little acts of kindness. They save lives in ways that we don't know. But they do. A smile, a warm cup of tea with a friend, a word of affirmation. 
just letting somebody know that they're not alone in this dark world, that saves lives. Sorry, I'm getting mopey. No apologies needed at all. So <laughs> now that you're at this point in your life where I'm not, I, I don't want to say like you're 100% confident, but you're confident enough with your own self and your own truth to be able to speak to other people. How do you take this back to the community that you grew up in? Or do you feel comfortable doing that? I know your mother is like an advocate for you, but do you advocate for other Iranian American like people who go through this as well? Well, part of it is, um, I think building one's confidence. I don't think it ever ends. I think it's a lifelong journey because I think honestly, that's what life is. I think life is about three things. Finding out who you are, why you're here, and what you're meant to do to the world. You know, what is your gift? What is your superpower, if you may? <laughs> My superpower is that I'm trying. Um, I am producing a short film that I co-wrote, which is called Transit, a New York City fairy tale. And it's about a love story between a trans woman and, and a man. And, you know, they fall in love and, you know, well, they hook up and, you know, they enjoy each other. And then at some point she feels that she has to break it up with him because if she comes out to him, then he's going to break up with her. And then, you know, however the ending goes. So the story was brought to me about two years ago by a friend of mine. And then I wrote the dialogue for the woman because he knew enough to say, I know this character, but I don't know what she thinks. I don't know what she's going to say. And I completely value that because that's what alliances are built on. You know, I'm never going to claim that I know what life is like as um, uh, a black woman or as uh, a white woman or as anybody who has a different experience than me. And I know I, I don't even claim that I know what it's like to be a trans person who's different from me. I think we all add to the pot. My journey is this of a person, uh, you know, who looked a certain way, who at a time that passing was integral to being able to survive, I could pass. And that has certain privileges. And I think with that privilege came certain responsibilities because I got to go through school. I got to uh, join the workforce in a way that a lot of my trans sisters were not able to because I worked stealth for about 15 years that people didn't know I was trans. I kind of came out of one closet and went into another closet because there was no other place for me. But then I came out publicly about three and a half years ago on the day of marriage equality. And since then, I have tried any opportunity I've had to put something positive out there because I don't believe in fighting negativity with negativity. So, you know, you call me idiot, so I'm going to call you stupid. I, I don't think we gain anything from that because then it's just the race to the bottom. But through this project, Transit, I'm, I'm trying to put, you know, just another color on the trans experience. I reached out to the community and I actually made a video uh, in Persian talking about the fact that here I am, an Iranian trans filmmaker, and if it is of any value to support either uh, an Iranian female filmmaker or an Iranian queer filmmaker, however this has value, please support us. And the greatest gift that came out of that was that there were trans and queer Iranian people from Iran, from Canada, 
from Europe, they started reaching out to me, you know, the hashtag world, that I guess they were looking up a hashtag and they found me and I would get these messages of saying, you give me hope. I mean, I can't imagine how I'm giving someone hope because I'm not really doing anything. But one of these women said to me, she said, it gives me hope that I have a sister who is like me, who is from the same land that I am from. But not only are you open about who you are, but you embrace it and you hold it up with pride. And that gave me an opportunity to say, because there is nothing wrong with it. Because if the people don't understand and value it, that does not make it wrong. My mom says something. If 50 million jump off the bridge, it still doesn't make it right. If the whole world says that I'm sick, what makes sick? Some people say that if you believe in a creature that you can't see and you believe it has uh, magic powers, some people believe that's sick. I don't think that's sick. But I also don't think I'm sick just because my identity does not get squeezed into um, the anatomical sex I was born with. Because I believe human beings are more than the sum of their body parts. And I'm also on the advisory council for Gender and Family Project, which is part of um, the Ackerman Institute. And they help uh, families with trans and non-binary children get um, the counseling, the support, and the community that they need, the education, the information that those parents need to kind of navigate their journey and be able to be supportive of their children through also they themselves having a community that supports the parents. And I get to be part of that. And this year, I actually get to be part of uh, two of their support groups, one for the children and one for the parents. And that for me is a dream come true, is a dream come true. And to the best of my ability, because I am an Iranian American, but you know, I'm basically a New Yorker. And I try to create alliances with my fellow Iranian Americans, young playwrights, queer or not, because I kind of also try to break those boundaries. When we're fighting for autonomy and equal rights, it doesn't really matter if you're a person of color or if you're queer. We're all asking to be respected as an equal human being. We all ask to have equal protections under the law. Uh, We all want to um, be hired and get equal pay, regardless of our race or gender or sexual orientation or skin color. And what I said in the beginning, the TERFs, uh, trans-exclusive, radical feminists, when they talk about the fact that if you give trans women rights, that is taking rights away from women, I don't understand that. Because what that is saying to me is that you are saying that trans women are predators. And if trans women have uh, permission to enter female exclusive places, then that is a threat to you. While I am not a threat to anybody, but if somebody's coming after my community and basically telling me that they have more right to personhood and safety than I do, and say, no. I'm sorry. I don't want to take anybody's rights away from them. But you are saying that my rights are less important than your rights. So when I say that people of color, really anybody, 
anybody who's asking for equality, I am there with them. And this is one of the dumbest things I say. I say, you may not make room next to you for me, but if you ever want to fight next to someone, there's always room next to me for you. And that is what I put out in the world. You may not have the eloquence or the compassion to show me humanity, but I try to be better than that. Because I believe that only if we all try to be better than our most base instincts can we hope to have a better world. I'm not the most prolific filmmaker. I'm not the most talented actor. I don't have the biggest connections. But everywhere I sit, I try to be a positive credit to my community, whatever that may be. If you see me as an Iranian, if you see me as an American, if you see me as a filmmaker, if you see me as a trans person, if you see me as a queer person, whatever you see me, I try to be a credit to all of my identities and bring all of this together. Because I think that is the only way we can move forward. And the voice of hate has always been there. It's always been there for millennia. It's changed form. And it has always been loud. We've just become aware of how loud it is. And it is not in our power to shut that voice up. What is in our power to strengthen the voice of inclusion and love of compassion. Because, you know, here are two women that I'm talking to, however you identify, queer, gay, straight, bi, trans, non-binary, just because I may not understand something, in my mind, the way I look at the world, it does not take away from its validity. I don't speak Chinese, but I don't question the fact that there are over a billion people who do. I may not understand exactly what non-binary means or how a non-binary thinks of themselves or their gender or how it relates to other people. That doesn't mean it's not valid. That still should make me want to respect someone just because they are a human being. And based on that fact alone, they deserve to be respected as an equal. That's what I try to do in my everyday life with my community of Iranian diaspora, my queer community, my trans sisters, and our allies. That is what I try to put forth. Not everybody might be up with that, but I have a basic belief. If you stand up for what you believe, the right people will stand with you. And I know that that's not always easy to do, as I'm thinking, like you said, the hate's always been there, but it's louder now we're hearing it more now there's more access you know with social media and the internet and all of that now and putting out that positivity even as that negativity is circling around it's not always easy but like you said I, it is so important to do see i come from a country that was going through a lot of hardship revolution uh eight years of war food rations bombings my family was fortunate enough, we didn't actually lose anybody, but there were families who lost family members, their whole families, who lost their homes, who became refugees, you know, when I was a child. I remember seeing them, people who had been somebody in their town, but now had been reduced to one room in a hotel in um, my city of birth, Tehran. Uh, people who lost their homes in Tehran. My brother had to be, you know, smuggled out of Iran and that destroyed our family. Life isn't easy. 
Nobody ever said it was going to. There was no guarantees of such. But we can all try to make it better. And just because it isn't easy, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. I want to leave the world a little better than when I found it. Does that mean there's going to be a lot of moments that I feel lost, that I feel that I'm up against something that's much bigger than me? Yeah. But there have been people before us who've done it. Great people. You know, um, great activists, activists of color, women, queer people. There have been Norma Rays that, that fought for uh, rights of workers, Dr. King, Susan B. Anthony. You know, it's like all of these great people who have fought. They didn't do it because it was easy. So when you say it's not easy, no, it's not easy. But I think that is what makes it even worth more to do if it is of value to be of service to your community and the world around you and leave it a little better than you found it. If that is not something of value to someone, I can't force somebody to be something that they're not. But you two strike me as people who value trying to make your community and the world around you more positive. And that's more difficult. Think of it as building a house. Building a house requires patience and work and tenacity. It's not going to get built if you just sit there and just imagine it. You have to lay those bricks. And what we're doing now is those bricks that uh, Marsha P. Johnson did what she could at the time that she could. And that's how much she could accomplish. And... Jill Soloway created a show that created a dialogue that hadn't existed before that. And Laverne Cox and the lovely cast of Pose and a fantastic woman and the, the trans women who ran for governorships or state legislator or queer people or allies. Change is happening. And the annoying thing about change is it's slow. It's never as fast as we want it to be. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. You are an instrument of change. You are an instrument of change. I'm an instrument of change. That Dre who put us in touch with each other, they're an instrument of change. And sometimes something takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes 20 years. Sometimes it takes four generations. We still fight for it. Thank you so much. We're almost out of time. <laughs> so we want to give you some space to plug anything that you would like to plug at the end here, whether it's um, anything you're involved in, any new upcoming projects. Yes. Uh, well, uh, Transit, a New York City fairy tale. We did a fundraiser for uh, at the end of last year, and we raised a good amount of money um, for the first phase of production. But there may be a latter phases <laughs> we're going to need more money. So I'm just putting this as a placeholder for when we get to that point. Uh, but the reason we created it is because we thought, why shouldn't trans people have a fairy tale? Mm -hmm. That things end happy at the end. That, you know, the heroine of the story is a positive, strong, aspirational trans character. That and, you know, I mean, I, I try to be as good of a credit to my communities, as I said before, as I like. And I would love to collaborate uh, with you lovelies if you ever 
me again. You're like, Priya, you really rambled on today, so we don't think so. No, um, absolutely not. <laughs> we would love to. Yes. Yeah. Anything you have in mind, let us know. We would love to. But I also want to extend my gratitude to you for giving me this time because I'm a little older and I've just seen a little more. And as Alexandra Billings said, she said, I walk into a room and my approach is that it's not that I know more than you. I just know something different from what you know. And if we can bring all of those together, then we will know so much more. And so me being older is not that I know more. It's just I've seen different things and I've learned different things. And I like to share that with you and your audience. And through that, we can strengthen our community and fight for our place, which is at the table with everyone else. Not a bigger dish than anybody else, not a smaller dish. Just at the table, the same thing that everybody else is getting served. That's what I'm fighting for. And I'm so grateful that you gave me the opportunity to be able to share that with you. So we're grateful you were able to be here with us today. Can I just say one thing? Absolutely. If you aren't a motivational speaker, you should be. And if you ever start a tour, I will absolutely buy all of your tickets and I'll be the only person in there. <laughs> oh my God. I've been thinking about it. Oh, thank see? you. There's a sign from the universe. Yes, Move that forward. Thank you. That, mm-hmm. that means a lot to me. And you too, you mean a lot to me and to our community. And I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. Um, and you know we're halfway through winter so yes yes it's so great to have you and I do hope our paths cross again it was wonderful to hear from you thank you so much and you know all of my hashtags if your audience wants to follow me I'm I'm a kind of like a one-trick pony it's Puya Land everywhere on Twitter on Instagram my hashtag P-O-O-Y-A-L-A-N-D I thought if it was good enough for Disney why not me um but, you know, if people ever want to reach out to me, um, and I, at the very least, I would try to be an ear that they can say whatever they need to. Thank yeah. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Yeah. You too. Blessed be, and I wish you a wonderful week ahead. Thank oh, you. You too. too. Yeah. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories. Also check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Studwell. She's an incredible queer artist from D.C., and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk, Talk to you all, all next week. week. Bye. 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 Bye.